last month, I began to teach on the biblical concept of seeking shalom. And so we began last month with what it means to be at peace in relationship with God, what it means to be reconciled with God. Um, This month, we've moved on to another but uh, related aspect of shalom, which is our own internal sense of shalom, what it what we might call peace of mind. What does it mean and what does it look like and what does it take to be at peace with yourself, within yourself? How do we experience the shalom of God internally? Shalom, as I've explained over the last several weeks, is really about our our personal sense of wellness, which gives us peace. When things are well in our lives, we experience peace. So shalom is often translated into the English word peace, but it's really much broader than that. It's the life of blessing and favor that God wants all of us to experience and and enjoy, knowing that he's with us and for us, as we just sang about. It's a state of personal uh, well-being in which we're physically, emotionally, spiritually, and relationally at peace. It's to say, again, as we sang a short time ago, it is well with my soul. This means we're at peace with God, within ourselves, and with other people around us as well. Shalom is the abundant life that Jesus offered to those who follow him, which begins right here and now, but it's fulfilled or culminated when Jesus comes back for us someday. So here's the the challenge, right? We've talked about this already uh, for some time now. There are things in life that will rob us of shalom if we allow them to. And for that reason, to protect and preserve our experience of the shalom that God offers us, we have to identify the things that steal it so that we can stop them from stealing it. Last week, we we talked about one such challenge to shalom, the experience of shalom. It's the anti-shalom of busyness and the solution that God offers us, which is rest in his presence, rest in his provision. Well, right up there next to busyness is another issue that God speaks to us about in his word, which is also an anti-shalom. It's a It's a stealer of shalom, and that is anxiety. Anxiety. Don't you love that word? I'm kidding, of course. It's similar, synonymous with other words that you might like just as well, words like worry and fear. And these things, let's be honest, have a big place in many of our hearts and minds, probably bigger than they should. So let's talk about this. Let me me just ask you to be responsive with me here a minute. I'm going to come down off the podium and just, you know, you can, I'm going to put on my inner Oprah here a minute and uh, ask you for, for a little participation, right? And uh, you, can, you can do this in the spirit of confession, if you'd like, in the spirit of humility. Um, I want you to publicly identify some things that you become 
anxious or worried or fearful about? What comes to mind? What's at the top of the list for you? Okay, finances, kids, parenting, okay, retirement, okay, surgery, health, a job, okay, yep, loss of a loved one, deadlines, broken relationships, good, okay, Family, relationships, yeah. Getting old, ooh, yeah. <laughs> That'll do it. <laughs> Anybody else want to confess something that causes you to feel anxious at times? Finances, I think somebody else already said that, but we can, you know, we can take a second on that motion. <laughs> the Detroit Lions, right. That's funny. Good, very good. Well, you get the idea, right? I mean, honestly, the list could go on and on and on. And matter of fact, I encourage you to do this. If I can give you a little homework assignment. In fact, you, you, could, you don't even have to take it home. You can do it right now if you want. I give you permission to pull out a piece of paper or your church bulletin or your phone if you want to do it electronically. And just as you're listening to me talk about anxiety... Make a list of the things in your life that you find yourself feeling anxious about routinely. This would be a good exercise for each one of us to take a few moments on. Because you can't solve the problem unless you identify it, right? You can't overcome anxiety unless you're aware of how it's attacking you and stealing your peace. So take a few minutes as you listen to me talk about anxiety to make a little list of your own sources of anxiety. Maybe it's some of the things that you mentioned a moment ago. But beyond that, right, think a little more deeply because it's probably not just one thing. There may be one at the top of the list that's most easy to identify. But what else comes second or third or fourth or fifth? What are the things that are robbing your peace of mind? Is anyone here afraid of flying? <laughs> I'm talking about flying in an airplane, by the way, not just you know, trying to jump off a podium or something. Here's an illustration for you of how prevalent the problem of anxiety has become. I was, as I was researching uh, this subject, there was a headline news article that came out uh, just yesterday, how, you know, how helpful, right, that they would put this in the news uh, just for our benefit because it's directly related to what we're studying and, and talking about this morning. Here's the headline, right? The title of the article, Virgin Australia to Offer In-Flight Meditation for Anxious Travelers. So an airline is now offering in-flight meditation, guided meditation for anxious travelers. Listen to the, it's a short article, but it's helpful and insightful. Let me just read for you. While flying gives travelers a way to see destinations across the globe, it can also be a frightening experience for some. 
Those who have a fear of flying can now rest easier on flights with Virgin Australia, as the airline has announced a new initiative to assist nervous flyers throughout their journey. The airline is partnering with the nonprofit Smiling Mind, which offers both web and app-based meditation programs created by a range of psychologists and educators focused on mindfulness. As part of the new partnership, the airline will be incorporating Smiling Minds guided meditations into its in-flight entertainment system, providing a tool for travelers to use to calm their anxiety and focus on their well-being. In addition to in-flight entertainment offerings, Virgin Australia is also introducing a new system to allow passengers with a fear of flying an opportunity to connect with airline staff before their journey. This way, crew will be able to assist passengers with, with personalized tips and communication before their journey and one-on-one -on -one interactions throughout their flight to ensure a comfortable experience. The airline has yet to specify exactly what the in-flight programs and pre-journey and onboard assistance will look like, though it plans to announce additional details on the new initiative in the coming months. Integrating mindfulness into our everyday lives is just as important as eating and exercising regularly. And I am so excited to see Virgin Australia deeply embedding mindfulness into the workplace and onboard flights, said Sir Richard Branson. The airline will also be implementing the new Smiling Mind program for its staff outside of flights. So the solution to all your anxiety problems is the Smiling Mind app. Thank you. We're done. Let's go home. No. Friends, what I want you to take away from this article are two simple little insights. Number one, the prevalence of anxiety has grown to such a great measure in our society that companies are now trying to figure out how to solve that problem for their customers. That's amazing. And secondarily, and quite honestly, I think that this little article should tell us something about how the real problem of anxiety could be solved. There's a hint here, but I'm not sure that the Smiling, app, the Smiling Mind app is the best solution that God has to offer us. So let's start with this. Let's talk about what anxiety is and how anxiety works so that we can go to battle. Anxiety is anti-shalom. Anxiety is anti-shalom. Let's just be honest about it. It robs us of the peace of mind that we are meant to enjoy by undermining our faith in God. Let me say that again for good measure. It robs us of the peace of mind that we're meant to enjoy by undermining our faith in God. So what is it? Maybe you've never stopped to think about it, even though you've probably felt it a million times. Well, by the book, that is the dictionary, it's defined as any feeling of worry, nervousness, unease, or fear 
typically about an imminent event or something with an uncertain outcome. And I think there's something very important and insightful for us to think about with regard to that definition. In other words, anxiety is a belief and a feeling or emotion that the future, something in the future, will not work out in our favor. It's a fear, a form of fear. It's rooted in the basic belief that something bad might happen to us. That's what lies behind and beneath every form of anxiety. In one sense, anxiety could be viewed as a natural response to certain circumstances, and even in some cases, a healthy response to certain circumstances. It, It helps us to detect and avoid potentially dangerous situations. So for example, a healthy manifestation of anxiety might be something like this. If you hear there's a Cat 4 hurricane headed towards your neighborhood, you might naturally feel a little anxiety about riding the storm out, which should rightfully then inspire you to leave town, right? But here's the thing. For many people, a natural, healthy experience of anxiety grows into something bigger, something unhealthy and unhelpful. Highly anxious people or those who are described as having an anxiety disorder, as one article puts it, have an overactive fight-or-flight response that perceives threats where there are none. That's the heartbeat of anxiety. Perceiving threats where there are none. It's an overactive fight-or-flight response that perceives threats when threats are not really that present or powerful. Some uh, therapists working with people that have anxiety disorders have even taken to defining anxiety this way. This is, I think, helpful too, to some degree. They say that it's the overestimation of danger and the underestimation of our ability to cope the overestimation of danger, and the underestimation of our ability to cope. Now, I, again, I think that's helpful, but honestly, it's, un, it's an un, unbiblical view of the problem. It's a secular definition of the problem. It may work as a secular definition, but for those of us who are in Christ, there's something important to understand. We are never meant to be completely self-reliant in our own ability to cope with the problems of life anyway, right? We're meant to be God-reliant, not self-reliant. So to underestimate your own ability to cope isn't actually the best way to describe the problem because, yeah, we are all unable to cope with the problems that life might bring our way. The point isn't, regarding your ability to cope, the point is regarding God's ability to help you cope. So to bring a little clarity to the spiritual dimension of this problem, let me redefine 
anxiety, kind of starting with um, the definition I just gave, but changing it to what I think is more helpful and more biblical. We might say that anxiety is the overestimation of danger and the underestimation of God's ability to help us no matter what challenge we may have to confront. It's the overestimation of danger and the underestimation of God's ability to help us. So essentially, it's a lack of faith. It's a lack of faith. Generally speaking, where anxiety, worry, and fear are rising in a person's mind and heart, faith is diminishing. They're contradictory to one another. So imagine, for a minute, anxiety personified as a person sitting on one end of a teeter-totter and faith, or perhaps Jesus himself, on the other end of the teeter-totter. When one end goes up, the other goes down, and vice versa. When faith goes up, anxiety goes down. When anxiety goes up, faith goes down. Let me give you a little visual of anxiety. And honestly, you might find this clip, I'm going to show you a movie clip, you might find it comical, and yet I want you to think about the fact that people, many people, actually feel this way and act this way. Here's a little example of extreme anxiety and what it looks like. Straight. Is this the uh, Telegraph Hill Pharmacy? Yes, I need a delivery, please. A Purell. How how many bottles do you have? Uh, Very good, all of them. Yeah, send them all. Uh, Who is it? Telegraph Hill Pharmacy. Uh, Just leave it there, please. Just leave it here? In the rain? Yeah, just go ahead. I I put it on my MasterCard. I left you a very nice tip. Make sure you get it. Okay. Alexandra, it's Buffy, your favorite editor. I know you're there, and I know you're not going to pick up. I just worry about you, darling, sitting at your computer, living on a diet of only Progresso soup. How can you eat that every day? So, how is the new Alex Rover coming? Wasn't I supposed to read something two weeks ago? <laughs> no pressure. No. Can one really see the bubbling lava inside the mouth of a volcano? Send. Mailman. Hey, excuse me. Can you just leave it on the porch? Can you just leave it on the door? Ouch. Grab it. One, two, three. Who needs mail? I can get it tomorrow. 
All right. So if you haven't seen that movie, it's uh, Nim's Island. And the whole movie is a pretty powerful depiction of Alexandra's anxiety. Reminds me, actually, of another of my favorite movies. I won't show you a clip from this one, but if you want to take a deeper dive into the problem of anxiety, you might spend a, an hour or so with um, my friend Bob Wiley, and uh, he'll have a few things to teach you about the nature of this problem. So, scenes like this, or for that matter, right, the entire movie of What About Bob, make for great comedy. But the problem of anxiety disorders in our culture is, is truly serious business. Not something to laugh about, honestly. According to the National Institute of Mental Health, anxiety is the most common mental health disorder in the United States. And it affects nearly one-third of all adolescents and adults. That's 33% of all people over the age of 14. That's a lot of people. That's somewhere north of 40 million Americans that suffer with an anxiety disorder. Not just a little anxiety now and then under natural circumstances. We're talking about anxiety disorder. Now, let me just give you a visual aid here to help you understand the significance of this problem, how prevalent it really is, and I think what an opportunity for ministry it is at the same time. So here's what I want you to do really quickly. At the end of each row, starting with the person who is closest to the middle aisle, I want the first person and then the fourth and then the, the seventh, every third person to stand up quickly. <laughs> All right, so take a quick look around, right? In a group this size, the average group this size, this many people standing up are suffering from an anxiety disorder. What does that say to you about the nature of this problem? Yes, it's powerful, it's prevalent. And it's a great opportunity for ministry. You can be seated. Thank you. So listen again to what Paul says in Philippians 4, 6. Do you remember? Philippians 4, verse 6. This is a verse you might want to commit to memory, particular, particularly if you're one of those you know, 33% who really grapple with this problem of anxiety. Philippians 4, 6. Say this with me. Do not be anxious about anything. Do not be anxious about anything. This is an imperative command. Not a suggestion. Not, you know, just a little word of advice that you can choose to take if you like. This is an imperative command from the ellipse of the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And, frankly, it's an invitation. It's an invitation from God. And if you stop to think about this 
short little sentence, it, it says something profound to us. It means that we don't have to be anxious. It means that we allow anxiety to creep into our minds and hearts and rob us of our peace. It means, quite honestly, that in most situations, anxiety is not just a mental problem, it's a moral problem. It's a spiritual problem. If God's word says not to do it, but we choose to do it anyway, it might just be something that we actually need to confess as a sin. So have you ever stopped to consider where your thoughts actually come from? When you're feeling anxious or nervous or worried or afraid, have you ever pondered where those thoughts and feelings are generated? You might assume and I'd say most people probably do, that they're self-generated, that they come from within you, from your own mind, your own imagination about what might go wrong. But consider this. Thoughts and feelings that come, and the feelings that come with them, can also be generated by something outside of yourself. And there are three possibilities. Three basic possibilities. They can be triggered. Your thoughts and feelings can be triggered by the world around you, other people, for example, or some situation you find yourself in. Or they can, be, they can come to you. Thoughts and feelings can be triggered by the Spirit of the Lord within you. Or they can come from, the Bible says, the powers of hell. Demonic powers under the influence of the devil himself. And so this is why, I think, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We dem- Listen closely. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. You see, the Apostle Paul understood something very important about the mind and how the mind works and the thoughts and feelings that the mind is subject to. It's not just you that has the capability to influence how you think. You have an adversary that wants your thoughts, to go south. So Paul says, do not be anxious about anything. Why would he say that? Because there's a better way to think. There's a better way to think and feel than allowing anxiety to establish a stronghold in your mind. Do not be anxious about anything. Might sound like a tall order to some of you. Might sound like pie in the sky, like an impossibility. Do you think that's the voice of God? Do you think that's the inspiration of the Spirit? Saying to you, oh, well, you can ignore that bit of advice because it's impossible. 
That's not the heart of God. That's not the word of God. That's not the voice of God. It's the voice of God that's saying, no, you can be better than this. You can think better than this. You can break the power of anxiety over your life. So is it really possible? Would God ask us to do it if it were really and truly impossible? Or is there perhaps a better way to think that's truly marked by shalom, the peace of God? Well, God's word right here in Philippians 4 and in other places promises us that there is in fact a better way to think that is available to us in Christ. So here's the second takeaway I want to put before you, and it really draws you right to the title of the message this morning, The Great Exchange. The Great Exchange. The Great Exchange God offers us is to trade our anxiety for his shalom. And let me tell you, that is like the best deal anybody will ever offer you. That is a great deal for us to make. Listen again to how Paul completes the sentence in verse 6. Philippians 4, verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And... He continues, and here's the promise that's connected with that. And the peace of God, the shalom of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So notice here that the replacement for anxiety is the peace of God. And notice what God promises his peace will do for you. What does Paul say? In some mysterious way, beyond your comprehension, beyond your understanding, God's peace will actually serve to guard your heart and your mind. That's beautiful. That's powerful. That's amazing. So imagine this with me for a moment. Picture peace, again, personified, not this time on the end of a, um, a teeter-totter, Picture peace as a sentry, a guard, posted at the doorway to your thoughts and feelings. I don't know if it helps. You know, you can picture one of those English, um, what do they call those guys, you know, with the red uniform and the big black hat. <laughs> what are they? Beef eaters, yeah. Picture peace like a big beef eater stationed at the, the door of your mind. His job is to protect you from any thoughts and feelings that would overtake your mind and emotions and lead them astray. So he wants you thinking about what a great guard he is, not about the threats to your thoughts, to your feelings. This is why uh, people commonly refer to this experience as peace of mind. Peace of mind, that's what we're talking about. Peace of mind is the absence of anxiety, worry, or fear about the future. 
It's the recognition that God is good, that God is sovereign, that God is powerful, and that God is present with you to walk with you and to help you through life, no matter what situation you find yourself in. So is it possible that you're going to find yourself in a difficult situation? Well, yes, of course. It happens to all of us from time to time. Life throws us a curveball, and, and we feel like we've got to duck out of the batter's box because we're about to be, be hit. There are all kinds of things that can and will happen to us that are not good. But the point is to think about the goodness of God in the midst of those challenges so that anxiety and fear and worry about what might happen doesn't become greater in your mind than the presence of God with you. And notice again, Remember here, again, that peace is described and defined by the Apostle Paul as one of the nine fruit of the Holy Spirit who is present in the life of every follower of Jesus. So that means the more that you invite the Holy Spirit to consistently fill your life, the more peace will mark your thoughts and fill your life from day to day. Peace is a fruit of the presence and fullness of the Spirit's work in your life. Let me give you a couple biblical examples that illustrate the power of this this principle, this truth, this promise that Paul's offering. Here's one from Luke 10, 38 to 42, and it's a familiar story, although oftentimes when this story is talked about and taught, the focus is on busyness rather than anxiety. I think there's actually a little bit bit of both, and and what's really at work here is anxiety, perhaps as much or more than busyness. It's the story of Mary and Martha. And it's a really short story. I probably could do a whole message just on this, but just quickly as as an illustration, hear these verses from Luke chapter 10. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. You get the sense here, right? This is an unexpected visit, unplanned. It's a drop-in. Jesus didn't phone ahead, say, hey, Martha, I'm coming by next week for dinner. You know, why don't you clean the house up and get everything ready for me? No, he just shows up on the doorstep. How many of you like unexpected visitors? I didn't think there were going to be very many hands that went up. So, what happens? Jesus shows up at the doorstep. Well, Martha had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. So she came to him and she asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. And listen to the Lord's response. Listen to these words of gentle but firm rebuke. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, You are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed. Indeed, only one, only one thing is needed in this moment. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. So what was Martha anxious about? Well, at the superficial level, you might think, well, she was 
anxious about entertaining Jesus and his whole entourage. They showed up unexpectedly. Who wouldn't be anxious about that? She wanted the house clean. She wanted the meal prepped. She wanted everything to be just right. But think deeper than that. What was she really anxious about? Is it possible that she was anxious about what her guests and what Jesus in particular would think of her? Is it possible that she was anxious about making a good impression because of her insecurities? Is it possible that she was anxious about not being thought of as good enough? Anybody ever felt that way? I have. Just a quick little diversion here for a moment. A couple years ago, several years ago, I went through a season where I felt like somebody had taken a rubber stamp that said not good enough and just, you know, planted it on my forehead. Not good enough. You know what caused that? People leaving the church. That's what, that's what caused it for me. That was very difficult. It was hard, hard to take, hard to understand, especially when I wasn't convinced that the reasons were good and godly. I felt betrayed in a sense, but more than that, I felt not good enough. Like, I just couldn't measure. I'm not a good enough pastor. I'm not a good enough leader to keep people around, you know? And I really struggled with that until one day the Lord, I was thinking about it, praying about it, dealing with it, and I felt like the Lord said to me, you know what? You're right. You're not good enough. That's exactly the point. You never will be. And then he said this, it's not about you being good enough. The real question is whether I'm good enough for you to depend on. Now consider Mary's example. Jesus' firm but gentle words of correction for Martha highlight, elevate the example of Mary to the contrary of Martha, right? He says, Martha, you're worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed, only one. You know what's interesting about this story? The one thing needed is not described and defined. You have to figure it out from the story. You have to think about what Jesus is saying regarding the example of Mary. So as I thought about that and pondered it, I came to the conclusion, I think what the one thing that Jesus is talking about that was needed, that was most important in that moment, was not to be worried about making all the circumstances just right or not to be worried about what everybody would think of the hostess. What was most needed was exactly what Mary exemplified. This was a moment to just be with Jesus. To be with him. Not to do something for him, just to be with him. It was about attentiveness. True attentiveness to his presence. And you know, here's what's amazing about Jesus, right? He could say things like this because he walked in perfect peace every moment of every day. He was shalom personified. To use a phrase popularized by 
author and, and Jewish rabbi Edwin Friedman, maybe some of you have heard, th- heard of this book or read it, he's written a book called A Failure of Nerve, and it's a great book for leaders in particular. Um, he coins a phrase about what it means and what it looks like to be a non-anxious presence. And you know, honestly, Jesus is the perfect example of that. Jesus was a non-anxious presence in every moment, in every circumstance. Anxiety never characterized the thoughts of Jesus. But that peace wasn't just for him, right? You can write that off. You can, well, he's Jesus. He's the Son of God. He's perfect, of course. He never struggles with things like we do. But this is the thing, right? Jesus offered his peace to his followers. That's why I love the the story of what Jesus said when he first rose from the dead. This is another quick little illustration, a quick, quick little example in John chapter 20. You know, the, the disciples are, are scared. They're worried. They're anxious about what's going to happen. Jesus is dead. He's been killed. He's been buried. Their whole idea of the future has been thrown into turmoil. They have no idea what to expect. They believe that the Jewish authorities are probably out for them now and that they may face the same fate. So what do they do? They lock themselves into a room. They're hiding. They're playing it safe. But they're anxious about what's going to happen next. And here's what we find in John 20, 19 to 22. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and he said, it's the first word out of his mouth, Shalom. Shalom be with you. And then again, the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And then again, Jesus repeats himself, Shalom be with you. As the Father sent me, I am now sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Do you think there's a connection between our experience of shalom and the presence of the Spirit of the Lord in our lives? You bet there is. So that story moves us then toward a real and viable solution to the problem of anxiety, the anti-shalom. Peace of mind or shalom comes to us from the Spirit of Jesus, the Spirit of the living God, who is now living in us as followers of Jesus, but we have to access it. So let me finish with this last but important insight. To trade anxiety for shalom, we need to seek God in prayer and petition and fix our mind on God's presence with us. That's the solution that the Word of God gives us to this problem. To trade anxiety for shalom is to seek God in prayer and petition and to fix your mind on God's presence with you. And again, I I love the concept of this 
trade because it's really an unfair trade. What we get is so much better than what we give up. It's to our benefit, our great benefit, to accept the deal that God has offered us. I'll give you a quick example uh, by way of illustration. Years ago, there was a, a woman that was a member of our church, uh, Debbie Maynard. Some of you might remember the Maynard family. They live out in Virginia. Um, still good friends of ours that we've kept in touch with, and uh, we went and visited them this last summer. And some years ago, Debbie wrote a letter to me. I'd have to dig it out, but I can remember the gist of it, explaining how God had healed her of anxiety, specifically about driving. Every time she went to get in a vehicle, she was consumed with anxiety. She could hardly stand driving anywhere and would try to minimize uh, driving whenever possible because she hated it so much. It made her so afraid every time she got in the car that she, didn't, she never wanted to do it unless she absolutely had to. She went through some ministry, some prayer ministry, and the Lord began to deal with her on this fear. And sooner or later, she figured out how to give it to him and invite him to bring freedom and healing into her life. And she wrote me to tell me that she had come to the point where she felt she was completely free from the anxiety that she had formerly suffered with because of God's grace, because of God's help, because of the peace that he offered her in exchange for her anxiety. So Philippians 4, 6, right, is the, the key admonition here, the key instruction, the word of instruction that Paul puts before us, the word of invitation that Paul puts before us. In every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. In every situation. With thanksgiving, by the way. That can be really hard to do when you're feeling overwhelmed with anxiety or fear. But thank God in that moment for his presence with you. Thank, thank him for his promises. Thank him for his faithfulness. Thank him for his goodness. Thank, thank him for his power. Thank him for his provision. And you'll be amazed at how your attitude begins to shift. Now, just so you understand, this is not just some random idea that we pluck out of Philippians 4, but you know something not to be found anywhere else. There are lots of scriptures that speak about this same principle. Let me give you just quickly as we wrap up a couple highlights. Here's some advice from David. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. David prays, and this is a great prayer. This is a great example of exactly what Paul's talking about. David says, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's the prayer of David. But it could be your prayer too. Search me, God. If there's any anxious thought in me that's not right, expose it. If there's any offensive way in me, lead me in the way everlasting instead. Or here's some similar advice from Jesus, the lips of Jesus himself, Matthew 6, 33 and 34. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, 
And all these things, food and clothing and provision and protection, all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Kind of an ironic word of comfort, if you think about it. Here's some advice from the Apostle Peter to a church under persecution. People that are suffering at the hands of their persecutors, the Romans. Peter says in 1 Peter 5, verse 7, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. All of it. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And then there's this advice from the Vineyard's own John Wimber. It's not in the Bible, but I think it's got the ring of truth to it. I remember John used to say this repeatedly at some of the early conferences I attended when I came into the vineyard. He said, you have to have greater faith in God's ability to protect you than than you do in the devil's ability to bring you down. Which do you believe in more? Fear is really faith in something or someone other than God. So is your faith in the devil greater than your faith in the Lord? So the first, the first thing then that we need to do is offer up our anxiety and fear to God in prayer. Confess it. Bring it to him. Cast it upon him. But then there's a second thing that's related to this, and this is what the end of our passage in Philippians 4 addresses. Verses 8 and 9. We have to focus our minds on the presence of God with us, which is the best thing you could ever think about in any circumstance. Finally, brothers and sisters, Paul writes, whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's admirable, if anything's excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. The God of peace will be with you. The God of peace will be with you. There are lots of things that you could think about that might fit that list of adjectives that Paul gives. But the best thing to think about, the most powerful thing to think about, to meditate on, never mind the Smiling Mind app, the best thing to think about is the presence of the God of peace with you. And this brings us right back around to a couple of other promises that we've mentioned over the last few weeks. Isaiah 26.3, you will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. Or Romans 8, verse 6, the mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. So anybody ready to be done with anxiety? 